0: Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine podcast for those that love to make and drink great beer. Before we start this episode, a quick reminder that at noon Eastern, 10 a.m. Mountain Time on Friday, October 23rd, we drop the special 2020 Best in Beer edition of the podcast to accompany the annual Best in Beer edition of the magazine. As always, magazine subscribers get to read it first, so if you're not a subscriber, go to beerandbrewing.com and hit the subscribe button to make sure you get this anticipated annual issue delivered right to your inbox as soon as it's available. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is joining me from New York City, Kevin Stafford, uh, head brewer, co-founder of Finback Brewing.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Hey, Jamie. Thanks for having me.
0: We're going to, we've had a lot of fun beers from Finback over the last few years at Craft Beer and Brewing. Thank you. Thank you all for sending beers our way. Um, Everything from hazy IPAs to, you know, fruited sour beers, mixed culture beers uh, uh, more frequently lately, Um, and of course, barrel aged stouts. And so we're going to talk about this kind of creative experimentation going on at Finback, and some of the things that you all have learned on the brewing side through that process of experimentation. Looking forward to kind of picking your brain and, uh, you know, before we do that, nearly 2,000 breweries across the US, Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GD ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize, like Russian River, Nkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more, all trust GD to chill the beer that you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also BSG is partnering with Leopold brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold brothers is a family owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they've created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to BSG craftbrewing.com or contact bsg at 1-800-374-2739 so kevin talk to me a little about uh, uh finback as a brewery and also your brewing history um the arc that you took through that this world of craft beer uh to get where you are today uh co-founding finback and uh, uh getting into brewing in general
1: uh well it all started um god a long long time ago uh, I got into home brewing, so i'm um, one of the guys who started off as a home brewer home brewed for about nine years wow um uh brewed everything uh you know pastry stouts i p a s um the whole spectrum um and after after doing doing that for a while uh i i decided to get real serious about it and um I started looking for some brewery work um I got a, uh, a job at Defiant Brewing in uh, New York City, and um, I got another brewing job shortly after that, and then uh, not too long after that, I decided to uh, jump in it, and uh, we, we found a space, bought a brew house, and uh, put everything together. What year was that? Uh, 2014. 2014. Is when we, Yeah, that's when we made our first beer.
0: New York city has come a long ways over the last decade. I moved down to New York city in 2010. And when I left long Island city, uh, there were uh, three or four breweries, maybe, you know, in the entire city at that point. And then within a year of leaving, (laughs) there were a couple more. Um, and at this point, uh, you know, there's been a real renaissance, uh, in the world of, of craft brewing, even within the, the borders of New York city in a way that, uh, you know, never really experienced prior to that, Um, you know, manufacturing in New York City itself can be a real challenge. Um, Talk to me about some of the interesting challenges that you faced with, uh, you know, getting an urban brewery in such a large, tightly uh, packed, um, dense kind of of city up and running.
1: Wow, yeah. Um, Well, I got to say, uh, finding the right space was probably one of the hardest hardest things to do. Um, I was literally looking for a space for two solid years. And it was like a full-time job. I, I, oftentimes I felt like I saw everything on the market. Um, you know, I started looking in um, close to where I live. Um, I live in Park Soap, but I was looking for a space over in Gowanus, and, uh, sun, the Sunset Park neighborhood of Brooklyn. Um, and I, you know, and it was just, it was really hard to find a space that was affordable. And I slowly, uh, moved that search out and, uh, started looking further and further out. Uh, started looking at spaces in Queens where we did finally find a space.
0: So talk to me a little bit about, um, this, this challenge that you as a brewery face is, you know, locations that are near the people and near an audience or within walking distance of, of a neighborhood and have the potential to, uh, or, or, or easy, even easy to get to for people, you know, because people in New York City with, you know, some exceptions, generally speaking, don't drive cars, you know, it's going to be subway, public transportation, uh-huh. car service, cabs now, uh-huh. um, you know, and so when you start talking about buying beer, Uh, You know, when I lived in the city, I mean, beer meant I might stop by the grocery store on my way, you know, after getting off the subway to grab something because we didn't have a lot of refrigerator space. You know, we didn't. store stuff for very long it was very much a just-in-time inventory for my own personal stash and that seems that's a bit at odds with the way that people buy beer these days especially now when people are buying cases of 16 ounce cans you know how how did you balance this like being close to where people are so they can frequent the brewery versus finding something cost effective uh you know so that you can afford to have a brewery there and kind of and then still figure out how to get beer to people in the kind of quantity that you need to
1: yeah, th- that that sounds great. Um, we, 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 we chose a space that was pretty far from public transportation yeah. and far from people and our kind of age range and, the, you know, the, the kind of people who buy, you know, the kind of beer we make and drink. Um, so that was definitely a hurdle uh, we had to get over. Um, but it, it just made us work that much harder. Uh, to create a destination where people will you know go that extra mile and come out and try uh, and get the beer
0: so when you launched the brewery, what was the was there a defining idea behind what you're going to brew? Um, you know there are some folks that that start with a very clear idea of what the beer is going to be. Uh, you know for you as you were envisioning Finback, uh what was the idea that drove it?
1: Uh, initially, it was the whole idea behind what we wanted to do was experimentation and we wanted to brew everything you know we wanted uh, when we when we first opened um, we had uh, kind of like a west coast IPA a whipped beer and a smoked porter the, you know and that, that that was kind of like the direction we are going it's good old classic in. stuff sure it's like you know Whip beers you know you didn't really see that often and you know there weren't that many smoked beers out there and that's kind of the direction we wanted to go in but that's not the direction that people wanted us to go in <laughs> so we you know not too long after we kind of changed our tune and i mean now we're, we're pretty ipa heavy i mean even even back then you know six and a half years ago um i i totally would have jumped in and done all ipas but uh i didn't think that was possible but now it, it clearly is very possible sure so now, sure. now we're pretty ipa heavy how how did you find
0: what people wanted from you? I mean, I think that's an always, always an interesting thing. You know, when you launch a brewery, um, how, you know, how do you get to a point where there are enough people that even know or care, you know, what you're doing to even give you the feedback and say, hey, we think it's going to be more – would be more interesting if you do this kind of thing?
1: Um, yeah. So just doing events at bars and, you know, going to beer fest and stuff, uh, just chatting with people and you know, people can be pretty straightforward and, you know, they're not afraid to tell you how they really feel, right. you know, whether that's for good or bad. Um, yeah.
0: Well, rather they be honest than uh, than tell you just what they think you want to hear. That's true. Um, you know, so then over the last five or six years, I mean, we've watched actually, I mean, I guess it would be about five years, this uh, this kind of hazy, juicy IPA trend start to bubble up, you know, in 2013, 2014. Um, And then, you know, start to kind of hit a a, a trotting speed around 2015, uh, right as you all were uh, kind of, you know, coming up. Um, How did that and this kind of emerging trend that was kind of interesting and becoming more captivating to, uh, you know, to brewers and drinkers at the time, um, you know, how uh, were you able to kind of corral that and, and, you know, stake out some territory in it?
1: Yeah, for us it, it was it was kind of a, a slow steady pace. Um the IPAs we were making when we first started out versus what we do now are you know, they're slightly different. Um I think before our IPAs were more kind of a west coast style. I, they, I don't well, they I don't think they were 100% west coast, you know, we'd Yeah. we'd use all the hops and the IPAs we made they weren't as bitter as you know you would think a west coast ipa to be um i think the real only the real difference was uh the yeast that we were using initially we were using um chico yeast on all our ipas right and you know i'd compare them to uh all the hazy boys and you know our our beers stood up and they were just great hoppy beers but the minute i changed from american to london yeast people went nuts and I'm like it's the same beer you know <laughs> it's like yeah uh, yeah so it was just it, as
0: simple as changing the yeast strain
1: yeah yeah it was it was out of this world the response
0: that's kind of fascinating so same same hops same uh, process same dry yeah. hopping everything and all it was was you know just a, a bit of a pivot on the yeast
1: yeah and like 30 percent more haze and you know <laughs>
0: people were, were dying um, you know, so as you started making that move was, were there any additional, you know, kind of, you know, bodybuilders that you started moving towards, whether it's oats or wheat in the grist to, to kind of help, uh, push that haze along or, uh, uh, were you already doing that in your, uh, with your American or West coast style? Yeah. Haze?
1: It's, that's something we always did. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we always kept our bases very pale. Um, I always use Pilsner malt as a base. Yeah. Um. Why? I, I always thought the two row was a little little dark for me, but um, we we always use Pilsner as base and then uh, flaked oats and wheat. Yeah. Sometimes together, sometimes separately. P- pale mall, just too dark. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't hear yeah. that very often. <laughs>
0: Um, you know, so in that sense, I mean, while that's one thing on a West Coast style IPA that can make for some incredibly very, very, very light, uh, uh, you know, kind of hazy, juicy IPAs, um, almost like pale and, and milky. Um, oh yeah. Have you kind of kept it in that
1: realm or, uh, or do you tweak it here and there? Uh, there, there's an ebb and flow between like super pale, milky, beautiful, you know, just a light straw colored beer and then yeah. something more, more yellow,
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about hops in a second, but first Five Star Chemicals and Supply is your leading provider of cleaning, sanitizing, and adjunct chemicals for breweries throughout North America and internationally. All products have been formulated with safety, equipment, material, and quality in mind. Interested in trying their products? Contact support at fivestarchemicals.com to inquire about a free craft brew sample pack and only pay the shipping. Just mentioned that you heard it here on the podcast cheers to beer. Also, Yakima Valley Hops is your hop source, whether you're brewing five gallons or five barrels. Get all the hops you want when you want them. They source the highest quality hops from the Yakima Valley and premium growing regions around the world so that you have access to the largest hop portfolio possible. Even the hard to find varieties like Citra, Nelson Sauvin, and Galaxy. Homebrewers visit yakimavalleyhops.com and wholesalers visit spothops.com. So let's talk a little bit about a uh, bit about hops in your IPAs. Obviously you make a whole bunch of them and yep. uh, generally those prime drivers and difference differentiation between those IPAs become hops. Um, do you have some favorites and uh, uh, are there some ways that you found to blend or to use those that create some um, interesting uh, combinations or flavors that uh, that you find very appealing or that somehow feel more representative of Finback?
1: Yeah, um, well, I, I I have to say I do love and Mosaic. Yeah. But uh, no, that's, what that's am I such new... a uh, rare opinion. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, <laughs> no, there's nothing uh, wrong with those. Yeah, no, they're great. Um, I just had to give them a shout out. You know, it's well deserved. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, Meridian Hops.
0: Meridian, okay.
1: Yeah, it's uh, if you do a single IPA with Meridian, you kind of get like a. Um, a green melon flavor hmm. uh, kind of like honeydew yeah it's 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 beautiful um and uh brew one is another one some pineapple notes right i'm a, I'm a big fan of um all the experimental hops it's like whatever's new i, I gotta have it i gotta get it <laughs> i got I, you know i gotta play with it right so like yeah so experimental zero two five nine six or whatever or hbc you know yeah, so all the new hops I'm definitely interested in.
0: When you are thinking about hops combinations, um, you know, what does that process of of uh, kind of creation look like for you? Uh how do you, you know, is this uh, something in your you know, in your head or do you rub and smell or do you have a kind of taste or an end product or end kind of goal in mind and then you build hops around it or do you take a more uh you know kind of developmental approach and um see where the combinations take you
1: yeah i don't i don't think i have like an end goal um for a particular flavor when i start mixing hops but i do like to keep things kind of in harmony yeah and just kind of layer the flavors and aromas that i think will go together um an interesting combination um Mosaic and El Dorado, when kind of like dry hopped together, they actually produce that same kind of green melon flavor that Meridian has.
0: Hmm.
1: And I think if I had a, a Meridian beer and a Mosaic El Dorado beer side by side, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference.
0: Interesting.
1: But so sometimes you find weird combinations like that. Um, there was another beer we did. It was dry hopped with Citra and a Tanum. Mm-hmm. This was years ago. But it, it came out tasting like basil interesting i mean it it was good but it was very unexpected very unexpected
0: huh um have there been any of these unexpected finds that you've enjoyed so much that they've become things you've gone back to or uh uh, do you just continue to kind of push and try new things more often than that
1: yeah for, for me it's really hard to repeat a process and a combination just because there's so much out there um so, I tend not to repeat myself too much. Yeah. Just because I I, I can't make myself do it. It's right. like there's too much going on.
0: Yeah. What is the, you know, at the same time, you know, you are trying to learn from each one of these brews. Um, how do you keep track of what you're learning through that process? Um, you know, tasting notes or, you know, combination strategy or, process uh you know kind of tweaks do you have some way of of taking what you're learning so that you can pull back on that and uh and reference it down the road for the the next round of experimentation
1: oh absolutely um plenty of tasting notes uh plenty plenty of spreadsheets yeah um you know with as much information as possible you know mash temps grain you know water profiles um You know, ratings on you know, uh, on all the the apps and app ratings even figure into that. Everything. I want to know as much information as possible. It's very important. So, how do do
0: you manually pull that information and feed it into a spreadsheet? Absolutely. Wow, really? How how often do you do that kind of thing? Just you know, is it weekly, monthly, or
1: it's more of like a monthly or bimonthly? I'll just sit down, knock it out.
0: And then I have it. Do you look at scores or do you, are you also looking at kind of tasting notes and what people are, are saying uh, and does time figure into that at all? Cause I'm, I'm always it, curious about that.
1: It's mostly, it's mostly overall score Yeah, because yeah, time can have a factor, you know, when, when people rate stuff, um, Right. same thing with tasting notes. I try not to look at that. I try to get a quick, quick, um, kind of, uh, rating. It can also
0: be slightly depressing as a brewer to read too many of people's comments. Yeah, so, so you just flip through it real quick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but it is also, I think, an interesting way to kind of track uh, how things are aging. And of course, you never know what kind of condition people are keeping anything in, and so oh, it can absolutely. be hard to actually, you know, pull um, uh, actionable information out of out of some of that over time. But uh, you know, in a kind of broadly descriptive ways, uh, how have untapped ratings impacted how you brew or what you, what you brew or whether you pull back, uh, or bring back certain things? Uh, you know, does that really figure into it or, uh, is it just another piece of the the decision-making puzzle?
1: Uh, no, I I feel like that doesn't affect how we brew. I I think more or less it's, um, you know, uh, what the sales guy, uh, comes back to us (laughs) with and, you know, how the, how the actual people, um, who buy the beer? Buy the beer.
0: How is most of the Thinback beer bought? Um, you know, is it mostly brewery direct? Is it a mix of brewery direct and distribu- uh, distributed beer or draft, and then cans out of the brewery? How, what does that mix generally look like?
1: Oh man, so so right off the bat, um, it's it's about fifty fifty cans to draft. Um, we have one distributor we work with in New England. Um, we self-distribute in the city. Uh, we do get a lot of people coming direct, but it's probably most of it is from retailers. Yeah. So that then also creates a
0: you know another challenge you know that that breweries commonly face of trying to um, you know when you're selling it directly out of your tap room, it becomes easier to see what's moving quickly, and there are those breweries that are moving cases of of. Beer out of their tap rooms here, or there, um, you know, and you get a very fast feedback loop as to how things are moving. Um, you know, there becomes another challenge to. Um, I mean, I guess your even your delivery drivers have to communicate directly with your accounts to see what you know people are buying and how quickly they're buying it. Um, uh, you know, does that feedback loop then feedback into um, what you put into the
1: mix? Absolutely. I mean you know, again, the more information, the better. And, you know, we, we respect everybody's opinion. And um, yeah, we, we we definitely try to use that. I think that's kind of now we're kind of just focused on like, the, you know, hazy IPAs, you know, low alcohol to double IPA to triple IPA to, And then, you know, pastry stouts, kettle sours, and uh, mixed culture, funky sours.
0: What, um, from your perspective, how do those break down for you Is IPA, you know, 50%, 40%, you know, it is the biggest share of most breweries kinds of, uh, you know, output, how much, um, from a market standpoint, is there, you know, a desire to, to drink those pastry stouts, um, or those kettle sours? Is it, uh, uh evenly distributed or, um, you know, in, in a broad sense, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, majority of the beer we make are IPAs, um, maybe like 80%. Yeah, that's no surprise. That's
0: everybody these days,
1: yeah. Yeah, it might be more. It might be more. But, um, yeah, we we, we, we sprinkle in kettle sours. Yeah. Um, I think we probably try to do one a month, sometimes every other month. Yeah. Uh, Maybe in the winter, it's every other month. Um, And then uh, non-barrel-aged pastry stouts, we also try to— Try to get in there once a month. Yeah,
0: um, with those kinds of things, with these kettle sours, with um, you know the pastry stout, dessert stout kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Um, what drives you on those? You know, is it this? You know, do you do it because people want it from you? Do, is there a creative drive to try and create these things? Um, you know, I know that from a brewer perspective, there are. Plenty of mixed opinions about some of those beers, and uh, some brewers love them, some brewers don't love them, some brewers make them because they have to, and other brewers make them because uh, they're exciting beers to you know and allow for some experimentation. Talk a little bit about your you know the
1: brewing philosophy that's that's driving some of those other product sectors. I mean, I, I do feel like we do need to brew it. I, I don't think we're brewing them because we have to. Yeah, but you know i i do like a kettle sour once in a while, and I like the fruit heavy kettle sours and the gozas and there's just so much fruit out there. I love playing with you know mixing fruit together and throwing them in a sour yeah um uh what one of one of my favorite sours we did i don't know I don't know if we first brewed it last year or the year before, but it it was a goza uh super salty I like my goza salty, so you know. Okay. Uh, our Goza's are generally saltier. Uh, but it was just a coconut Goza, kind of inspired by coconut water, you know? It kind of had like that, you know, it was inspired by like the saline kind of, you know, uh, flavor from coconut water, and uh-huh. obviously coconut. And it, it was stellar, you know? yeah, it, it was it was fantastic. And, you know, same thing with the, the pastry stouts. There's so many adjuncts that kind of work so well in An imperial stout. And I joke around all the time that I'm going to start making pastry pilsners, but (laughs) we haven't done it yet, but it, it could happen. Yeah. oh man it could
0: happen um you're gonna I mean. join modest brewing out of uh, minneapolis on that pastry pilsner front huh oh yeah
1: you know, do they have some oh,
0: they've sent us a few of those yeah oh that's great uh, um i'll have to talk to <laughs> there's uh yeah for 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 every uh, hardcore tradition there's an uh iconoclast who uh, would love to go against the stream and uh and show that something can be done um now i mean you know all of all of your pastry pilsners pale in comparison to, you know, Bud Light Lime and uh, the kind of scale that uh, macro beer has achieved by putting sure. adjuncts into lagers and so uh, uh the crime against lager that you might be able to uh, consciously commit is still small, you know, uh, by comparison. But let's, um, let's talk a little bit about adjunct ingredients, especially kind of in that pastry stout or dessert stout kind of realm. I, I want to kind of dig in. In fact, I'm going to open one of these here in a second. Before we do that, uh, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. ABS wanted to do something fun for the craft beer industry, so they're giving away an ABS keg Viking keg washer live on december 5th which happens to be national repeal day to enter go to www.abs-commercial.com click on keg viking page and fill out the contest form for your chance to win also craft beer and brewing's all access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine plus access to our library of video courses a special deep dive email only for all access subscribers premium content, and all access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbring.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. Um, I'm going to open a bottle of Incarnation here, which is actually, I guess, a barrel-aged uh, uh, stout. But, uh, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, because why not just open up a barrel-aged stout to drink while we're having a pleasant conversation about pastry pilsners and whatnot uh, on the podcast. Yeah, nice
1: yeah. little 13%. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: and this one was a uh, bottle that was left over from our review process for the last issue of Craft Beer and Brewing, and uh, I believe it scored rather well. Congratulations! And uh, thank you. Thank so you. let's thank talk you. about let's talk about this kind of um, you know dessert stout approach and uh, you know mixing ingredients. Um, talk to me a little bit about where you find inspiration around this and uh, what you draw on to to kind of push uh, new ingredient ideas. It does seem like. Uh, the process of innovation is is constantly moving here, and uh, and I'm just curious where what you pull on to, to kind of come around um, with these flavor combinations.
1: Yeah, so I, I kind of look at the beer itself for kind of inspiration, and you know you get that kind of rich body, you know a little roast and you know caramel notes and just high alcohol from these stouts, and you know I I always want to use something. Initially, that's kind of like harmonious with those flavors and that, that, that feeling. And, you know, coffee and chocolate are such an easy one to go straight to. I mean, I, I think one of our first uh, pastry stouts was a chocolate coffee stout. Um, and, and then just kind of based off that, it's like, you know, what goes with coffee? You know, like maple goes with coffee. Uh, cinnamon goes with coffee. Uh, marshmallow goes with coffee. And, you know and you just kind of play around with that and then you know it's it's just a rabbit hole <laughs> of different ingredients you know peanut butter and vanilla you know chilies and coconut we use a ton of coconut um, kind of across all our beers but especially in imperial stouts um, what is it about coconut, coconut in particular
0: that you' use and, and how do you use it I mean there's a number of different ways to kind of move it into a beer how do you find yourself um, using it more often than not
1: uh so we've we've tried it a couple different ways um we've tried it in the boil doesn't really work we've tried it in the mash doesn't work we've tried uh adding a little bit to uh the the fermenter during fermentation uh that was a long time ago and we certainly didn't add enough but now we uh we add everything cold side yeah
0: do you toast it do you put it in raw what is it uh, Uh, what's that processing look like
1: so, yeah, we, we, we do raw. Okay. I, th- I think that's one thing a lot of other people don't do. A lot of people get toasted coconut. Um, but I've, I've used toasted coconut once. Again, I don't think I used as much as I, I should have. Um, but I, d- I didn't get the the, the you know the same kind of flavor I got from the raw. Yeah. And
0: I I've, I mean, I've talked to plenty of brewers who do it both ways. And um, it's kind of fascinating to see. You can get... Depending on other uh, fine points of process, you can get good results both ways. It's interesting that uh, you do it that way. Now, talk to me a little bit about uh, managing the kind of oil component in coconut, especially when you're using it raw. I mean, that is one reason that a lot of people toast it to kind of dry it out a little bit and uh, and not end up with head-killing oil in their beer quite as much.
1: Yeah, I see, I just don't worry about yeah. it. <laughs> like I don't care. Just don't worry. Uh, you know, yeah. if, you know, if there's a little oil in it and there's no head, I don't care. You know, as long as the beer tastes good, that's that's the number one. Yeah. And number two is if that Imperial stout coats the glass, kinda like, you know, when you kinda rotate the glass a little bit. Right. Like, you know, as long as it sticks and it makes the glass brown and just stays there for a while, that makes me happy. <laughs> I don't I don't care if there's no head.
0: It's interesting that that kind of oily sheen is the new lacing for uh, for this kind of imperial stout um, right. because they oil yeah because they don't really have head to speak of um, you know uh, but that kind of. Yeah, thick oily sheen that just kind of sits there on the glass becomes that thing. Um, are there? Let's talk about some like nuts or a similar kind of oily uh, ingredient, and you do use those quite a bit—hazelnuts, peanuts, etc. Um, what uh, does your
1: nut process look like in uh, in building these kinds of beers? Uh, for peanut butter, we we've been using uh, uh, PB2, yeah. uh, kind of kind of the, like the powdered stuff. Uh, we've we've had pretty good results with that. Uh, we've just done like past four or five Imperial Stouts had PB two in it. Um, we've used almond and hazelnut. Is is that um, all going in cold side then with PB two? Yeah, that's going on. Yeah, it's all cold side. Yeah, all the nuts go in cold side. And uh, the thing about them is, you just got to use a lot. Yeah, a lot. It's it's really sad. And it looks like you're wasting them, but when yeah, you say a lot, what does a lot look like? In terms oh, of like God. pounds per barrel? Oh, I, I don't have the pounds per barrel at the top of my total head.
0: volume for a, I don't know, you're brewing on 15 or 20 or 30? what?
1: Yeah, I have a 20, so we do 40 and 60 barrel batches. So, But yeah, I, I guess if we're going to do a stout, it'd probably be like a 20. Or if it's coming out of barrels, it'd be even less than that. Yeah. But it's like, it's still hundreds of pounds. Yeah.
0: Um, what is the, what does that extraction process look like? Now, I mean, naturally, if you're starting to talk about higher ABV beers in this kind of stout realm, the alcohol is going to aid the extraction a little bit, but, uh, um, you can also, as you're adding dried powdered, uh, substance into a wet tank, uh, you know, you get a big clumpy mess that can just sink right down to the bottom and not actually, uh, you know, give you a lot of impact on the beer. What do you guys do to kind of make sure that you're getting the most out of these nut ingredients as you're adding them in?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, that's that's when you got to recirculate the uh, tank a little bit and really get a good mix going on. So sometimes we'll we'll start uh, like a recirculation process before we add the ingredients, and then you know slowly add them so it does get mixed up. It makes a huge difference. Just pumping you know? out of the tank and back into the
0: tank. So you're not necessarily uh-huh. dosing in an external tank then. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So we recirculate in the same tank, whether it's, you know, cacao nibs or yeah. nuts. We want the beer to, you know, mix well with them.
0: Um, that sounds like it's going to be murder on your pumps uh, from time to time.
1: Uh... Generally, the, the nuts and the cacao nibs and everything are in sacks. Okay. So it's it's more or less the beer, you know, going over the, the adjuncts got gotcha. you rather than mixing uh everything through the pump okay but yeah that would be murder <laughs> on the
0: pump um no and some folks do it and some folks definitely are doing that with hops these days especially you know with uh, pumps that'll shear them as they're they're moving through
1: um it makes a difference yeah it really does um
0: you know so how long what might you research with uh, in, uh bagged ingredients in a in a tank for
1: some you know one of these uh rich pastries first step yeah, for a cell like these, um, maybe maybe an hour or two, not long.
0: Oh yeah, that's not long
1: at all. But yeah, it's you want it mixed up and once it's mixed, it, sh- it should be pretty good.
0: Are there some ingredients that you've used that uh, gave you some unexpected results, either positive or negative, um, or where you've learned that uh, you know using a specific kind of that ingredient is certainly more interesting or better for what you're ach- uh, trying to achieve than others?
1: When you're using different cacao nibs, um, vanilla and coffee, origin is very important. Yeah. And the, whoever's processing uh, the ingredient, um, it's clearly uh, pretty important. So, like, you know, sometimes you got to spend money to make something good. You don't, you don't want to use cheap vanilla or cheap coffee because you're not going to get a good product. Um, but not, not, nothing crazy unusual. You know, when you
0: say, you know, cheap is one thing, but there are some also very expensive coffee varieties that may create beers that are weird or um you know unusual sure. how do you kind of balance that kind of coffee selection process to to come up because you know and, and i think about like i've had coffees that that tastes like everything from you know berries to bananas to tropical mm-hmm. fruit to or to yeah. just that general kind of stereotypical roast ground coffee yeah, yeah, you know yeah. flavor um when you start thinking about using coffee uh, you know, how do, how do you dial into specific varieties in order to kind of capture the flavor that you think is going to be interesting and that actually will convey to beer? Because sometimes some of those nuances and coffee flavors that you might pay a lot for as a consumer that's drinking it in a pour over, you know, may not always translate into a, a finished beer or may get bowled over by some of the other flavors in there. How do you, how do you think about uh, what can make it in and what won't make it in and isn't worth focusing on?
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, right now we've almost pretty much, uh, have exclusively been using uh Mostra coffee out of Escondido yeah. and they, they have a great selection of coffee, but you know, I'll, I'll look at the, um, the description of the coffee and kind of, you know, look for something that's again, gonna be in harmony with the other adjuncts that I'm using. If, if a coffee has some tropical notes, maybe it's good for, you know, uh, the the imperial stout that we're adding pineapple and orange to, you know, Um, and you know, and and it just amplifies those kind of tropical flavors, you know, so yeah, it's all about layering flavors.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the process of tasting and adjustment. You know, especially when we're starting to talk about adding ingredients. Um, there are plenty of times that you, you dose a beer with an ingredient, and you add a couple in, and you know, go in and find that it's not—it's not exactly what you're hoping it for it to be quite yet. What does that kind of mm-hmm. process of of tasting and iteration, and uh, you know, look like for you guys? How do you how do you do that on a kind of production scale?
1: That it's very painful. It's yeah. very, very very, very painful. Um, it, it sucks when you when you have a beer in the tank and you know, somebody's like, I don't think there's enough vanilla. And then you try it and you're like, You're right, there isn't enough vanilla. And then you either gotta make sure you have extra on hand or you gotta know, order more and just go through the process again. Um, uh, we have an imperialist out in the tank right now. Um, it's one of the ones we release every year and it needs, it needs more of everything. In fact, (laughs) you know, it, it, it needs more, um, chocolate, which we added the other day. Um, uh, more, more cinnamon, more chili. Um, and yeah, it just kind of it's painful. What does
0: that evaluation process look for, look like for you guys? I mean, you've got a brewing staff. Do you guys, you know, have kind of guided tastings. Do you guys pull samples and then taste between you all? And then when you think about, yeah, how do we fix this and how much more does something need? You know, how does that kind of decision-making process, what does that look like?
1: Well, yeah. When, when we're dosing adjuncts, um, it'll probably be me, two brewers and my, my, uh, my uh, business partner and we'll, we'll, we'll just talk about it. But when we, when we're tasting barrels together, it's like, you know, you know, three or four brewers, um, you know, we sit down, we go through every single barrel, we take notes, we talk, we talk about everything. Um, we, we, you know, we, we talk about our notes together and, you know, quite often when we taste, you know, 16, uh, wooden barrels, you know, there's usually one or two we eliminate before blending. Yeah.
0: As you're constructing a blend, um do you build by addition or do you build by sub- subtraction? Uh, you know, I think there's a couple of different strategies there that different breweries use whether it's I like the flavor of this, 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 and this, and let's build a blend from that. Or this doesn't meet our expectation. This doesn't meet our expectation. This doesn't. So we pull those out, and our blend becomes this. Uh, how do you how do you tend to build blends for specific beers?
1: Yeah. So uh, with imperial stouts, you you know we we brew so little that generally it's will take a barrel or two away. But for more like taking from here and over there and uh, that yeah blending we we do a lot more with sour beers right um we we have a variety of sour beers and um uh we, we actually just took uh, one of our brewers alex and he's kind of our barrel wrangler or our barrel wizard and um he's kind of like the guy behind the sours and um yeah it's, it's just a lot of tasting yeah just a lot of tasting from every direction and mixing and you know it's a long process it's right now it's just him doing it but it'd be a lot better if you know we had more than one person working on barrels but uh so far he's doing a great job still
0: a still a small project uh you know i guess in your overall production yeah Yeah. for sure um what are some of the crazier and more uh, out-there ingredients that you may have uh, worked into some of these dessert
1: or pastry stouts? Um, we've done an Oreo cookie yeah. uh, pastry stout. Oh, style. right. Veil vale style, huh? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And um, yeah, it, it was fun going to uh, uh, the BJ's down the street and just filling up carts and carts full of Oreos because they did have the best price after all. Um, and then in that same vein, we did uh, uh, Chips Ahoy Imperial Stout yeah. shortly after because uh, we had to. Um, we've used Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops come through magnificently in uh, an <laughs> Imperial Stout. In and an Imperial that... Stout, Fruit Loops. Yeah. Yeah.
0: When you say magnificently, uh, what makes them good?
1: Oh, that, those fruity flavors. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Just follow your nose. Okay. No. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's, just, It's a tropical dream.
0: And those Fruit Loops, is there, uh, in addition to that kind of fruity flavor and notes, is there some other contribution from the cereal itself? You know, some of that kind of toasty, you know, weedy, I I don't know exactly what Fruit Loops are made of, whether that's uh, oats (laughs) or rice or or wheat or barley or whatnot. I I mean, uh, I'm going to plead ignorance on that one, but is there some other of that kind of? Um, malt note that it might also, uh, you know, kind of produce or contribute.
1: No, I, I think the the cereal, the actual cereal part of the cereal is um, kind of lost. It, it does add a you know a sweetness and a and a fruitiness, whether that's a real fruit or not. So if
0: you're adding Fruit Loops, which of course also have a bunch of sugar in them um does that uh-huh. uh spark any secondary re-fermentation
1: or are you all we try to get we try to get them in early or towards the end of fermentation and then let the beer finish yeah it. so there's some yeast to ferment that out
0: or as much yeah. as it will because I...
1: it's still you know at that kind of abv
0: it's uh it can only do so much more
1: yeah we, we don't need uh bottles exploding for sure us. that that would yeah.
0: be bad so i love that you but Add yeah, your fruit loops it's something while think there's about. still some active fermentation happening. Exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's, it's always on the back of our mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other ingredients that you found make for some
1: really fun uh, adjuncted imperial stouts? Uh, one of my favorites was this coconut hazelnut uh, imperial stout we did um, grazing on the ordinary. Um, the hazelnut itself i don't remember where we got them from but the hazelnut had kind of like a coconut vibe going on Hmm. with itself so i was was like this is a perfect opportunity to work off that and play up the coconut so we dumped in a ton of coconut and we we just created this spectacular beer it was absolutely fantastic that is something i will rebrew over and over until i die if only you can find where you got
0: those hazelnuts when you when you
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta check
0: my email. <laughs> <laughs> With those hazelnuts, now obviously that's not coming in a powder like uh, like PB two is. No. What is? How do you process that in order to get it to a point where uh, you can get some extraction out of the beer?
1: Uh, we we try to have them crushed so there's more yeah. surface area. Um, you know, we'll we'll let the beer rest on them a little bit longer, um, and uh, cross our fingers. And are
0: those toasted also? Yeah. yeah. Those ones are toasted. I, I was just looking it up, and uh, that one was one of – we did enjoy drinking that one at Craft Beer and Brewing, and it did score a, a 96 with our blind review panel. And uh, as I look at what I wrote about it, uh, um, it seemed incredibly indulgent. Yeah. And yet I also felt like there was a quality – Of sophistication to it that didn't make it uh, I didn't feel cheap for liking it Mm -hmm. and so in terms of building that kind of simultaneously indulgent but also rich and sophisticated feel um, I'm interested in how you think about constructing that that uh, it's not that hard to make something that is very sweet very cloying and very obvious. And it is a little, it is more difficult to make something that feels just as decadent, just as indulgent, but also feels more sophisticated, you know, as you all build those kinds of, you know, are there some decisions that you're making along the way that add layers of, of deeper richness to those beers that, um, that add those additional
1: layers? Well, I guess when we're building a stout recipe, you know, I try to keep the dark roast pretty pretty simple. I'm a big fan of chocolate. I like the chocolate, pale chocolate, dark chocolate, chocolate rye. I'll sometimes use like a midnight wheat or a black prince. But just with the chocolate malts, you know. I feel it's hard to add too much. I mean, that's not true, but I feel like sometimes it's hard for me to add too much. And when I'm just using the chocolate, I, you don't really get as much of the, as the uh, complex caramel flavors or the dark fruit flavors. And it, it's a nice base. And then from there, you know, we, we do add a little dextrose for some more simple sugars, more alcohol. But then we also balance it out with some maltodextrin, you know, an unfermentable uh, complex carbohydrate, and um, so so we do build body with malto, um, I, and that's building body without sweetness, and that I prefer that way. I'm I not a big fan of the overly sweet, you know, lactose-heavy imperial stouts. I mean, th- that can get cloying really quick, but I feel like. You know the chocolate, the malto, some dextrose. You know it's it's a it's a nice base to layer on some some flavors that may have some perceived sweetness themselves. You know, um, but that's how we we make an imperial What style. is uh,
0: what does that kind of mash regimen look like? You're you're not doing thirty six hour boils and double mashes, a la well no, works. We and do Moxa. A, uh,
1: no, no, we, we we do a five hour okay. boil. That that works for us, <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I think on average, uh, we'll we'll will do like a thirty-four Plato beer, and you know it finish it can finish around anywhere from um, twelve to sixteen uh, degrees Plato, but you know and, it, and that 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 gives us a nice like eleven twelve percent beer. That's another thing we we don't go super super heavy on the alcohol. Yeah. I don't think we've ever made anything over. 13 percent there's a nice dark character to it but that doesn't drop too
0: low in tone um it gives you just enough of that kind of dark cacao note without being so austere that you need more sweetness on that kind of top end to balance it out and so it's almost like you've run it through a little bit of a compressor to use an audio metaphor that's um, just kind of sure. you know pulled pulled it in a little bit tighter so that uh, it doesn't have to be a top end sweet to balance that kind of you know big big uh, low end kind of growl. Um, but it still has that kind of finely tuned dark chocolate dark cacao note to it that uh, is incredibly pleasant let's talk about uh, uh you know some other areas of experimentation and um you know discovery for finback uh it is in across any beer style right now um what has been the most exciting thing for you to uh to have tried and felt was successful and interesting and kind of validated some of your you know uh feelings as a brewer
1: and uh you know and some of that kind of you know creative experimentation and Oh, what, one thing in particular is just the use of coconut in any and every style. Really? It, it just, yeah. I mean, I haven't put it in a lager yet, but it's only a matter of time. But it's great in everything. It's great in sours. It's great in imperial stouts. It's great in IPAs. And yeah, it's, it's very enjoyable. And it always comes out a little better than you think it will come out. Do you find yourself just putting coconut in
0: stuff because you know it's going to help heighten the uh, the experience of whatever else is in that thing? Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I just I just laugh about it because uh you know, when I was talking to Brett Coleman Baker of Urban Artifact last year, he was mentioning that um their magic secret is that they just put vanilla in it.
1: You know, oh yeah. Yeah. And
0: that, you know, he's like, Hey, well, you want to make a beer taste good? Just put vanilla in it. Like it doesn't matter what it is. And it doesn't even matter that it's that in a uh, large of a concentration is like we, you know, anytime we put fruit in something, we generally will put a little bit of vanilla in it. Sometimes it's sub threshold. Sometimes it is, you know, yeah, so yeah, such yeah, a yeah. small amount, but that tiny amount of vanilla can make people perceive the other ingredients in it. In so much more of a positive way and uh, it sounds like you guys yeah. might uh, love coconut in that same kind of way
1: yeah i mean yeah maybe i should start micro dosing uh every beer with a little coconut
0: there's your finback uh signature for the future <laughs> yeah exactly
1: oh, this is great well what's in it Secret. yeah yeah um
0: maybe it's sabro maybe it's coconut i don't know
1: <laughs> um i'll never tell yeah
0: kevin so uh what for you know for finback what is, what's the end game look like what's the goal of, of finback and what for you guys what does success look like how will you know that you've achieved it and uh yeah how how do you define it what's the what's the what's the ultimate
1: end for for finback as i, th- I think it's you know staying creative being creative letting our brewers be be creative giving our guests a creative experience. Yeah, creativity is so important to us and just being ourselves and being weird and, you know, trying new things. And uh, We're we're opening a a second tap room in Brooklyn. Um, Just like beautiful design, uh, a small five barrel brew house. So it's a little smaller than what we're brewing on now. And I think, That brew house is going to give us the option to brew more, you know, strange things, you know. Uh, And I I think will give us a lot more room to experiment and just hopefully blow people's minds.
0: And so the creative exploration becomes the end for you. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. That it's as much about, you know, there's
0: the business piece of it, but it is this process of exploration that, uh, that ultimately matters
1: yeah if we can do that and keep people happy
0: i'll be happy all right well that uh that makes sense and that's a a fun end to take nearly two thousand breweries across the u.s canada and mexico partner with gnd chillers try out leopold malts from bsg inquire about a free craft brew sample pack from five star chemicals and supply yakima valley is your hops source whether you brew five gallons or five barrels ABS Commercial is giving away a keg Viking keg washer live on December 5th. And subscribe now to Craft Beer and Brewing to support this very podcast. Uh, Also, because if you do subscribe now, you'll gain access to our Best in Beer issue, which drops on Friday, October 23rd. Kevin, if uh, people want to learn more about Finback, uh, where do they find you all?
1: Uh, You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Finback Brewing uh, and uh, Finback Brooklyn. Cool.
0: Cool. Well, Kevin, I've enjoyed talking about uh, fun and creative and boundary-pushing beers with you, and I've enjoyed drinking your beers while we've talked about it. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you much. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Brew.